Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition of Radio Curious, our associate producer, Christina Anastat, is a guest host in conversation about puberty rights for young women within the Winnemum Wintu tribe of Northern California. Her visit with Kayleen Sisk Franco, the spiritual leader and chief of the Winnemum Wintu tribe, was recorded near Mount Shasta, California in August of 2010. The Winnemum Wintu are a small tribe in Northern California. During World War II, they were relocated and their homeland was flooded to make the Shasta Dam. Nearly 80 years later, the tribe has reinvigorated one of its ceremonies there, called the Puberty Ceremony, which honors a girl's transition into womanhood. For three days and nights, men sing and dance on one side of a river, while the women pass on traditions on the other side. But holding a ceremony on stolen land can be a challenge. The U.S. government has not granted the Wintu's requests to access their ancestral land in privacy. The puberty ceremony is held with recreational boaters driving by and camping as the tribe works to hold its rite of passage. Under the guidance of their chief and spiritual leader, Colleen Sisk-Franco, the Winnemum Wintu have sued the federal government to protect their rights to privacy and their ancestral land. Colleen Sisk-Franco says preserving the puberty ceremony is preserving their way of life. We say that because it's, it's what most Americans would understand about puberty, having knowledge about puberty. But for us, the Winnemum, we call it the Bothless Chonus, which means that we are um, bringing our girls into a system or a culture that really demands that they be connected. And this is that ceremony that weaves not only them into the tribe, but the tribe together again. And when they all come together, they all dance, they're all waiting for the, for the young girls to come back as young women. And when they do, uh, there is a place for them. And there is a, a belonging that happens. And there's an ownership that all of the women share. And when the puberty belts are put on them, uh, that is the good blessings of all of the women in the tribe that wishing them well, that's committing to helping them. Whatever they might need throughout their life, their, commit, their commitment is to be there. And we all can't take care of everything for every person, but there's going to be somebody here who will be able to talk to them about childbirth. There'll be somebody here to talk to them about problems with their boyfriends or husbands or problems with their children or, you know, juggling things around or making ends meet. Everybody has their expertise, so when they put that puberty belt in, that's their commitment as the other women to accept the young ladies. And that's what weaves our, our people together, the foundation. And I think that's why we're still here. You know, we, we survived on the foundation of our elders, like my great aunt was the last generations before we started doing this that went through the full puberty ceremony before this lake was here. All up and down there were different puberty rites. We had to bring this back in full because, you know, the last ones that were done in the late 20s and those people who held that for us are all passing on. And so we had to bring it back before we didn't have it anymore. 
What's the cultural importance of having this ceremony, of continuing the ceremony for the Winamamwintu? Well, this is the uh, pretty much the bottom line of, of if there's going to be more Winamam. It's not enough to just be Indian blood. If you don't have a culture, you don't have a way, you don't have a belief, you don't have your sacred sites, uh, you don't have your language, then what do you have? You as a chief, why are you continuing on with traditional ways and what's the importance of that to you? The traditional ways to me, like, like Grams has taught me, is, is that uh, the world that is out here is pretty much an artificial world. The modern way of life is an artificial life because it doesn't require you to really know anything or do anything or be responsible to or for anything. If you forget, you could go to the library and look it up. But in the old days, when you had real knowledge, you would always remember which plants are poison, which plants are medicines, which plants are edible. And you couldn't afford not to know it. But if you have artificial learning, it's kind of like kids that learn their timetables and then the next grade they forget them. And then they learn them again and then they forget them. And then when you get to be an adult, it's like, oh, let's see, let me figure that out. But in the old days when you had to have real learning and real life and real consequences that you could see, then you were more in harmony or more in tuned with nature and you can live. It's like she says, uh, there's so many people who are, uh, have such an easy life that when nature changes, they're gonna suffer because they never like to get wet, they never like to get cold, they never like to get hot, and so they take care of all of that. So they live in this little space, a mediocre space, and whenever it gets too hot, they're gonna, they're gonna suffer because they're not used to it. It's an artificial world. As long as the artificial continues, you know, the salmon used to run up this river. They don't run up this river no more. The mitigation for this dam was Coleman Fish Hatchery. But we're not real Indians, so we can't get fish from the Coleman Fish Hatchery. And when you say real, you mean federally recognized. Yes, federally card-carrying, it doesn't matter, it's like, as long as they can prove a drop of blood somewhere, you know, you take a group of people who have no money, you put them on a reservation, and you give them minimal amounts of food, you're guarding them with, with force to keep them there, and then now they're going to be able to reorganize and run their own governments and do this. But if you choose to be traditional, they're not going to help you any, with any money. If you choose to remodel the, the American government structure, you get a lot of money to, to do that. Set up the council, set up the voting stuff, set up you know your constitution. But if you want to go traditional, no money. Do it on your own. So what the most of the tribes choose they're going to go with where the money is because they don't have any. And so now you have all of these little governments that replicate the United States. And nobody is trained to 
actually run a government like that. I mean, people don't go to school like President Obama to be the chairman of the tribe. Nobody uh, goes to school and learns all the stuff about it to be on the council like like your congressman. You know, what would happen if uh, Sitting Bull's term was up in the midst of all of this wartime? It's like, oh no, I'm not the chief no more. Vote in another chief. Or any of them. You know, the, the famous chiefs were never voted in chiefs. Yet, you know, the, the tribes now readily accept that model of, because the United States is saying, well, if it's not like that, it's not a democracy, therefore it must be an anarchy. You know, it must be, you know, a, a kingdom or, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But for us, you know, we don't vote. You're born into it. You have a responsibility to it, um, which goes both ways. It's like, if you're responsible for it, you're responsible until it's handed off. It's not like, if you put it down, it's like killing your people. I mean, how many other people are, are willing to live a lifetime uh, serving their people? It's like, I'm gonna do my four years and I'm done. <laughs> That's all the commitment I have. But for us, the direction that we go in or the teachings that we have follow that whole lifetime, which has come from another lifetime of teaching that brings us to the place where we are. You know, that lifetime was based on another lifetime that is steadily thinking of the river, thinking of the salmon, thinking of these sacred places. You know, so it, it doesn't change much, only that what we have to deal with on the outside, we have to deal with the Forest Service. We have to figure out, you know, how do we get the government to recognize that we have rights. You're listening to a Radio Curious interview with Colleen Sisk Franco, chief and spiritual leader of the Winnemum Wintu, the Middle Water people of Northern California. Colleen Sis Franco spoke with Radio Curious associate producer Christina Anastat in August 2010 at a Winnemum Wintu puberty ceremony honoring girls' transition into womanhood. I'm Barry Vogel, host and producer. What goes on over the course of the ceremony? Every day there's uh, visitors to the girls. They Every morning they go up river and wash and clean and and pray and they have their protectors and their um, attendant that will take care of them and today we'll be taking them up to the women's camp because that's where the women gather <laughs> it'll be their their first gathering at the women's camp and then that we'll take their uh, basket caps to be blessed in this in the cold springs. But every day they they're growing uh, stronger spiritually. They're they're uh, asked to leave their childhood ways. Like they they will recognize them. You know, even though we all try to, you know, we can all go back to a, a childhood. Uh, way of acting but at the same time we can see the difference and right now when young girls they don't see the difference and as they come through these four days they'll start recognizing that 
those differences that that they'll be able to uh, adjust and grow from. You know, it's not going to be an overnight thing, but they will be able to manage that better. I mean, we're recognizing as a community their strengths to do this. How do you mark the difference between youth and womanhood? I guess a different way of thinking, a different way of um, responsibility, taking on a little different approach to things. You know, not not the the mama's girls <laughs> as much. You know, they'll they'll start recognizing, and that's why we, you know, ask the moms to come out and also accept the changes that their daughters will be going through, and not to look at it as rebelling or. <laughs> you know, to work with them. But these things, you know, I think would be good for all kids, all teenagers. Everybody should be special. Every woman that has those changes coming out should be special, not just kind of bounce through it and try to figure it out. I mean, we'd have a lot less teen pregnancies and we'd have a lot less, you know, uh, teen uh, women violence because they like over there we're saying you have to learn to respect your body respect yourself just like this the two sisters that the respect that the two sisters have among the men because this is also the mountain that the men the young men climb and it's a very difficult mountain to climb but that's developing the relationship from men and women the men have to adjust to what women are because they're solid that's what they're learning and and not all of them can climb to the top the first time they go but they have to learn how to adjust to the women. They're our protectors and our providers. They're not our directors. How does the puberty ceremony also shape the way young men are brought into the culture? Oh yeah, yeah. The the young men see the they're the dancer, but they're also over there. The two protectors, the fire tender. But on this side, all of the men are here dancing for those girls. All of the men are showing the respect for these girls. So it's putting them, I mean, they are, one might say that they are succumbed to doing this, but it is their choice. I mean, it is, it is the, the way that the tribe operates. The other part of it is, is that during one of the dances, it's called a crazy horn dance. And the Crazy Horn Dance is where the men uh, basically make fools of themselves to make the girls laugh. Their job is to try to make her laugh. And whatever it takes, that's what they're going to do. Which teaches them that pleasing the girl is very important in their life that whatever it is, even to belittle themselves, to get done what needs to be done for them should not be below them. <laughs> and the girls are not supposed to laugh. I mean, it, it kind of puts it into perspective of uh, our places, you know, and how we get along in our relationships later. You know, because a lot of people uh, have too much pride to apologize or whatever it is. It's so um, you're also the, the tribe's spiritual leader. What, what does that mean and what does that entail? Uh, that means we're the keeper of the medicines, that we keep uh, our doctoring ways, our connection to the spirits. 
Uh, we talk to the, the Creator through the sacred places, that we get direction from them. All of the things that we choose to do, like when we did the war dance on the Shasta Dam, came down from a sacred place. It's not like we get, get together and we say, what's our next stance? <laughs> what are we going to do? It's like these come in and then we have to figure out how to do that. It's like everybody in the tribe goes, what? A war dance. <laughs> Last war dance done was in 1887 when they were putting the fish hatchery in. And then what are your war dance songs? When the war dance songs came in, uh, they were songs that were asking like the old salmon to come back. They were asking that the, the ones that fly to send down their blessings. You know, it wasn't like, kill all the white people. <laughs> or, or anything like that. Or like, you know, real violent kind of songs. It, wasn't, it didn't come in that way at all. And then at, the more that we went along, uh, it's like the, um, the dreams that were coming in to uh, several of our guys are dreamers. We sent them up on top of the mountain to fast. It's like, we need this because that's what they're calling for. They're calling for this and we have to figure out the best way to get it done. And so we sent the guys up on the mountain to fast. And um, after that, they started dreaming. And they could see the old time dancers and how they came in. And another one would see how they were dancing. And uh, we could hear the song. You know, they'd say, oh, it had this kind of a beat. You know, so it's like that's the spiritual part of it is, is that all of our spiritual ways are still here. We have gotten lost. If we would come back and be here and be connected, it's all still here because that's how the spiritual is. It lives here. It's like this mountain here. This is called the two sisters. The two sisters are the ones who will watch over these girls on the other side. They will stop what they're doing when we put the foot drum in and they hear that call, the song. They'll stop what they're doing, they'll come down and they'll help the girls figure out in their life what needs to be done for them. They'll figure out how to settle them down. They'll, they'll watch them the whole time. But that's why it's important. Like one of the guys said, well, we could just move that rock for you. <laughs> Puberty rock. It's like, well, can you move that mountain too? And can you move this river? Because it all ties together. It's all one thing. Can you tell us what was the war dance? When and what was it for? Uh, we did the war dance in 2004 to show, well, actually to tell the, the river and the sacred places that we are willing to do whatever it takes to stop them from raising the lake because they've already lost too much. We've already lost too much. But it was an agreement between us and the sacred places. If they if they are going to push that through and destroy, it's it's direct uh, genocide. You know, it's a cultural genocide what they're doing without giving us any rights to hold our own ceremonies, to practice our own ways of life. In 2006, the Winnemumwintu, your tribe, reinvigorated. Uh, the puberty ceremony, which had which had not really been done in full for about 85 years, and because this ancestral homeland is now federal forest service land, you had to go through the forest service to gain access. 
can you tell us what was that experience like and what happened? We have a very long-standing history with the Forest Service. We have sacred sites all along this area, all the way up to Mount Shasta, that is now claimed by Forest Service. So we have been butting heads with Forest Service forever. I mean, <laughs> since they were created, that we have we have had a long-term relationship in trying to use our sites. And uh, my Grams, the leader before me, uh, fought with them all the way through the 50s and 60s because, you know, they started building campgrounds on our village sites. The village sites that should have been given to us once they flooded our homes under the lake. But it wasn't. Instead, they came in and put campsites on our villages. In 1978, when they had the American Indian Religious Freedoms Act pass, my grams was the first one to utilize that act to get a permit for our sacred site. I mean, we're not just a pop-up tribe overnight. You know, we're, we're thinking we should just come in here and be able to use this place. We have, they have records upon records of years upon years of us and this land. And so for them to, you know, uh, conveniently forget those things, every time they change staff, we don't. But every time a new ranger comes on, it's like they must not give them any of those books, any of those. It's not important enough to school them about the tribe who lives here. Actually, this ceremony should have taken place last year. But again, the Forest Service has a bad memory and forgot that we already done it one time and what had happened then and how to do the security, how to provide a safety for us as well as any boaters. Because we were saying, you know, like, why wouldn't you tell the boaters that during these four days, you know, go somewhere else on the lake. There's 375 miles of lake, you know, so let them, let them vacation somewhere else. But last year it couldn't happen because they had a memory problem. What has their response been to holding the ceremony here? What did you want from them? We asked for the uh, complete use of the campground, which we didn't get in 2006. We only got this area right here. And we asked for a closure of, the, of 200 yards of the river from the lake. And that was it. <laughs> and they can't do that. So what's the importance of having this area closed off for this ceremony? Well, the, the importance is, is that one, we should have a, an indigenous right to have and to hold our ceremonies in privacy. There are certain things that are happening within the ceremony itself that belong to the people. It is, it's not on display, it's not a show, it's not a demonstration for people to come and look at. You know, it has uh, spiritual connotations to it that those lines shouldn't be interrupted by people who are not supposed to be here. In addition, we worry about people coming in with alcohol. We don't want that in our ceremonies. It never was in our ceremonies before, and it has no place. You know, a lot of American Indians already have a lot of problems with alcohol and we just don't need it around here. And, and people on this lake, you know, they're coming up for a vacation. They're coming up to have fun. And that's part of their fun. 
So having boats come through with alcohol in them because our, our huts are on the other side of the river is going right through a spiritual connection. And that's what they don't understand. It's like, well, the waterway is different. But if it was all land there, we wouldn't allow anybody walking through there with a six-pack, you know, of alcohol. And because it's a, a water, you let a boat go through with all the alcohol on it. We should have the right to say no. We should have the right to say that's not right. You know, we don't need that. But right now, I feel like, you know, if... If there's any chance at all for us, it would be with the uh, United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Human Rights, where all of these things are covered in those articles. The right to pass on our traditions, the right to teach our kids our distinctive and cultural ways in privacy, and utilize our territory and traditional places that were always ours before this came about you know when when a government comes in and does not pay just and fair compensation does not do any kind of consultation or or get our consent or have any paperwork that shows where they had uh, taken this land from us and then turn around and say well it's public land and we have to let all the public in that's not right it's fine for them to have federally recognized tribes but it's not fine for them to deny other tribes their rights to practice their religions and traditions where are the rights for the unrecognized tribes they should have some rights too they're still tribes they're still indians can you describe a eureka moment in your life a eureka i think that when when i first swam the falls we, we have a tradition where you swim the falls like salmon up river. There's three different falls. And you hear about it, but until you do it, there's nothing like it. It's like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Salmon do this <laughs> in this cold water. And why do you swim the falls? For the salmon. Yeah, for them, for them to return. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. Is there a, a book you'd recommend? You know what? I'm not a reader. <laughs> I think the only, only book I've read is like uh, Pooh Bear. <laughs> and I like Pooh Bear stories. <laughs> I like the one where when he uh, gets a balloon and he goes up into the tree where the honey is and he eats all the honey and he's still hanging onto the balloon and, and he can't get down. And he calls to Christopher to use his slingshot to hit the balloon so he could get down. And of course, Christopher says, just let go. Well, I can't let go. But the result is the same, you know, it's kind of like people. It's kind of like this, this world with oil. I can't let go of the oil. But if you take it from me, then I'll figure out something else to do. You know, the lumber. I can't stop logging, but if you take it from me, then I'll figure out something else. But I can't let go of it, like the gold, you know. I can't let go of it. Last question, what would you like to do with the rest of this life? I would like, one, to see the salmon back in this river. Radio Curious associate producer Christina Anastad spoke with Colleen Sisk-Franco, 
the chief and spiritual leader of the Winnemumwintu tribe in Northern California in August 2010. The book Colleen Sisk Franco recommends is Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne. For more information on the Winnemumwintu tribe, you can visit their website, www www.winnemumwintu.us All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Stale mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah 95482, California. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>